0: The dish of couscous, a touchstone of cuisine in North Africa and elsewhere, was just officially added by the United Nations to its intangible cultural heritage list. Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia and Mauritania all supported the request for this recognition. Earlier this year on Bulak, we talked about couscous and about different kinds of writing on cooking and food, everything from medieval cookbooks to how the kitchen features in modern Arabic novels. With the scholar Annie Gall. Over the end of the year holidays, we're rerunning this episode, which is one of our favorites. May it inspire you to try new recipes. Oh, and happy 2021 to you all.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the Bulak podcast. Coming to you, this episode triangulated from Amman, Jordan, where Ursula Lindsay is recording, from Rabat, Morocco, where I, Marshallinx links M am, and with special guest Annie Gall, who is in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Annie is a cultural historian studying food and gender in North Africa with a focus on Egypt and Morocco. She's both a food scholar and a food blogger who posts recipes with historical and cultural context at Cooking with Gaul, which is cookingwithgaul.com. She got her PhD at Georgetown and is a postdoctoral fellow at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And she is going to read to us from uh, an
2: essay that appeared in the most recent Arabic Quarterly, about couscous. Habib Bourguiba, the former president of Tunisia, allegedly once proclaimed that the Maghreb begins at an imaginary north-south border somewhere in Libya. East of the line, the theory goes, rice is the main dietary staple. West of the line, it's couscous. The story may be spurious, but in the popular imagination, couscous defines the Maghreb, and the Maghreb is the place where people eat couscous. This tautological rice couscous map is a neat idea, but considering couscous over the longue durée conjures a very different geographical imaginary. As Sylvie Dermilat points out, the word couscous metonymically designates the part and the whole, referring both to the tiny balls of rolled grain and the assemblage of vegetables, broth, and meat typically served with them. While today couscous is typically associated with a North African zone stretching from Libya to Morocco— its historical traces chart the borders of a much more capacious Mediterranean and Levantine world. Couscous comprises at once the smallest individual units of rolled grain, their amalgam into a collective starchy palate, and their combination with the innumerable variations of flavors, sauces, and ingredients that make up the vast repertoire of couscous recipes. Couscous's concept, in other words, evinces both a collective unity and infinite refractions of difference. Like the historical world that its travels map onto, couscous is a singular entity that contains multitudes. Thank you so much, Annie. Thanks for having yeah,
0: me on. It's great to have you. Do, do you know that I had this ambitious plan to cook a couscous f- like in advance of this, like to somehow get myself into like the best mind space <laughs> for this episode? <laughs> because because actually when I left Morocco, one of our friends gave us an enormous amount of hand-rolled couscous, like someone who used to come by and give it to us on a regular basis. And she was like, well, you're leaving the country. Like here, you must have kilos and kilos of it. So we still have stock, but unfortunately I did not. We have yet to uh, find the time. I need, I need my Moroccan husband to be involved in the process because I'm not good enough to do it well it's quite an undertaking
1: yeah funnily both the art director of Arab Lit Quarterly and the uh, managing editor who who proofread Annie's piece took a break in the middle of of working in order to make themselves a giant couscous so it it did her essay does have that effect on people apparently
0: well I mean one of the things that I thought about reading Annie's pieces that we'll be talking about in this episode is the sort of like parallel that I think there is for a lot of people, I, I, I think, between the sort of activities of writing and reading and cooking and the way that I think you go back and forth between doing those often in a day, um, and there's something really satisfying sometimes about, and like really complementary, I think, about those activities.
2: Definitely. I think in one way or another, all of my work is kind of getting into and investigating this tension and this relationship between writing and cooking. Um, and it works in in so many different ways. Um, like there's this importance, I think, of writing things down. I find a great satisfaction in recording details or you know, tweaks of recipes that have worked or things that I've cooked. But, you know, anybody who's spent a lot of time cooking, you know, there's so much that writing a recipe can't provide for you. Um, And there's so much that does get lost if the only way that something like a recipe is preserved is in writing. Um, And so textual sources and written recipes are enormously important to understanding food history or looking at a food culture, but they also leave out so much. So it's It's a really interesting tension, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's something that Noel Nasrallah, who is um, uh, also a food scholar and a translator of cookbooks, has mentioned to me a number of times that in in these recipe translations that we're reading now from, let's say, the 13th or 14th century, uh, the chefs themselves, you know, there's not a lot of basics in there because those things were passed down orally. And then mm-hmm. and there are the other aspects of cooking that were that were transcribed and written down and the tension yeah. between this kind of personal memory, public memory, what's passed down orally and what's written.
2: Yeah. And what's assumed. I mean, this is what I found so interesting when I was researching for that couscous essay, looking at the the set of, of couscous recipes in one of the medieval Andalusi cookbooks, because the first time that. The book mentions couscous. It's got way more detailed instructions than you normally get in that kind of recipe, which, you know, I um, presume means that this was sort of a new dish that these cooks were perhaps learning for the first time a sort of a local Amazigh dish that was being brought into this higher cuisine. But it's very, it was sort of striking to actually read precise instructions in that kind of recipe.
1: Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about that piece is how couscous traveled and then how also it retracted, you know. Exactly. Uh, that it was part of Egyptian food, and but then it like moved back into w- where it had been before. Um, so that the journey is so multi directional
2: yeah and it 's incredible how much once you sort of zoom out the historical lens, I mean, as historians of the Middle East were are often trained to really specialize in just a hundred years of history or two hundred years of history, but if you actually zoom out and look at a thousand years of couscou 's history it 's a it 's this whole zigzag across the Mediterranean and back, um, and mm-hmm. something happens when i mean i think of national cuisines as a canonization process and when you canonize egyptian cuisine or moroccan cuisine you know these decisions get made o- over whether couscous gets included and then again this sort of whether or not couscous gets named or written down as a national food then impacts the way that people cook um or even the utensils that people manufacture like you have manufactured sort of shelf-ready couscous and manufactured um, couscousiers or casacus, the sort of device that you need to make couscous. Those show up in Morocco in the modern period, but they don't show up in Egypt, which I think is, again, part of how it sort of then gets written out of the national repertoire or becomes a less prominent part of it.
1: Right. Well, I, I kind of cried over the last
2: casacus in uh in Cairo in in Egypt in, which was in, yeah, Alexandria, in Alexandria right, right. yeah <laughs> the last kiskes in Alexandria it was i was so shocked to find that in the record um because i had looked at just hundreds of types of pots and pans and all these different people's estates and to find a kiskes in Egypt was just shocking
1: right but you as you suggest there probably had been more until, and then, you know, it, until the, you know, the population left and then the food left with it and was canonized yeah. out of the tradition.
2: Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, you know, the, the records I was able to access at the Egyptian National Archives were limited. I, you know, I didn't have complete, perfect records for any period of time. Um, but I suspect, yeah, there would have been more of these um, prior to a certain period.
0: I also think the, the couscous is a very good example of this sort of intersection between national narratives and national identity and food, right? Because it's, uh, I mean, it, in Morocco where I've lived, where we've all lived, you know, it's definitely considered the the national dish, and then you have a little bit of like competition over like mm-hmm. <laughs> which country's national dish it is and who does right. it better and, and so on and so forth. And and I think it also, I mean, people have such strong feelings about food. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, well, I have several questions. I mean, one is about generally like in investigating this kind of subject. Is this something – New, like you mentioned, going to the National Archives, um, you know, is this kind of historical research relatively new? And do people understand what you're looking for um, and, and what you're doing? And then the other thing I was curious about is whether, when you're writing about food, if that presents a particular challenge, because it's maybe something that everybody has really strong feelings about and in a way feels like they're an expert on, because everybody has opinions about food. I hear, your, I hear your dogs in the background. There is, the dogs have a lot of
2: opinions about food, so they're eager to chime in. Um, should I wait until they die down, or can you hear me in with them in the background? Well,
0: we, we can hear you fine. <laughs> I, I, I think it depends on how, what, what chance you think there is that they'll die down.
2: Usually, they usually Yeah, they'll be fine. Anyhow. I'll, um, So to your first question about do people understand what I'm working on, they definitely understand it. I think the extent to which it's taken seriously as a proper research project really varies. And that is true in North Africa as well as in the United States. Um, And I think that just goes with the territory of studying food is that even though it's much more mainstream and accepted and done today than it has been in the past. There are there will always be people who don't consider it a serious topic of inquiry, which is, you know, fine. It doesn't bother me so much. Um, but one of the most interesting stories I have from the archives is actually, I mean, I knew from past researchers that I could locate these Probate inventories, basically lists of possessions that people had when they died. And that would give me a sense of what people had in their physical kitchens. So I knew that I would be able to find that and was having conversations with employees at the archives about what other kinds of records might yield relevant information about Egyptian food history. And this one woman looked at me and she said, You know, if you really want to understand Egyptian food, you're not going to find it here. Like, you need to understand tasbika. This is the heart of Egyptian food. And she used this word tasbika, which I had never seen written down. I still haven't seen it written down. But when I started to ask people about it, then everyone would say, oh, yes, she's completely correct. Like, that is the relevant core and heart of understanding Egyptian food. And by that, she meant... The technique, and it has a couple of different names in Egyptian Arabic, but this technique of um, sort of a, a braising of meat and vegetables in a tomato sauce, and then you cook down the tomato sauce until it is almost more of a solid than a liquid. So it's that thick tomato stew, and then the the vegetables are served with rice. And that's very much. It's not the national dish in that it's named and celebrated and talked about, but it is a very common everyday preparation that Egyptians of all regions, all social classes make frequently. Um, So yeah, even in the national archives, they, the, the people were like, you should, you know, this is fine to sort of play around in the archives, but you should really be talking to people about, about food. um, Which I think is pretty
0: telling. Um, And in a a way it must be both for good or bad. Like you're picking up, there's, there's possible like clues and insights to be gleaned everywhere.
2: Absolutely. Is the
0: upside. And then maybe the downside is that like, everybody has some advice for you.
2: Yeah. Which, you know, is exactly, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's great because it's a topic as a, as a foreign researcher in Egypt or Morocco, it's a topic everybody is happy to talk about, which is great. Um, But there were days where I was so, there were days where I would avoid going out to parties and social gatherings just because everybody wanted to talk to me about my research and, you know, share their theory about koshiri or this or that, you know, um, which, you know, I have so many great, incredible field notes and so many leads generated from those conversations. But there would be times where I just needed a break from my work. So. Yeah, it cuts both ways. But, you know, as an outsider, you know, I didn't grow up with these food cultures. And so, you know, I think I owe it to the people, to Egyptians and to Moroccans to do as much listening as I can. And, you know, everybody is an authority in some sense. Um, And I think a lot of, you know, the trick of writing about food and researching food is figuring out how to incorporate all the different voices and all the different forms of authority, whether that's, you know, people who grew up with the food and have a perspective uh, or the kinds of things that you can get from from reading specific historical sources or, or archives. Right. And
1: all those forms of authority are sort of equally valid and in a way they might not be in another
2: field. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. I, you know, I taught a food history class for the first time last semester, which was so great because I mean we started the semester with a discussion of um of authority and who has authority to speak on what kinds of food and it was kind of a theme that the students came back to again and again and we were able to approach in all kinds of different ways of you know when and how should we talk about other people's food and these kinds of questions
1: yeah I mean when you say that you don't mind that Um, food scholarship and food writing is sometimes uh, devalued Uh, to me there's also the flip side which I've read some scholars with no background in food or food culture or food history whatsoever writing sort of total nonsense about food in this and food culture in this region as if the you know the flip side of everybody knowing something about food is everybody Feeling that they have the authority to write about food. Yeah,
2: everybody has some kind of anecdote that they can then present as right the norm or whatnot. Whereas I think the strength of food as a topic of research is if you really get into it, um, it's very hard to pin down a norm. There's so much variation and so much variety and diversity um, that it's hard to say there's one one way of doing things or one definitive answer, um, which I think is ultimately a good thing.
0: And I mean, we're definitely in a moment, I would say globally, where the sort of interest in food and cooking seems to just continue to increase exponentially, right? I mean, I'm sort of thinking about like TV shows and stuff like that, but not just like the competitions, but these sort of like highly produced, you know, uh, specials like where, you know, I'm thinking of like Chef's Table and things like that, shows on Netflix where they Travel around the world and like discuss different terroirs and different techniques. And it seems like the sort of like interest in the history and production of food is like at a peak in the popular culture, no? Definitely. And I
2: think a lot of, I mean, people have written about the history of food studies as an academic discipline, as something that's very much tied into the role of food and the place of food in popular culture, that kind of the start of the food movement and the the expansion of food, of food studies in general in the U.S. are linked. Um, and then I've written about this and other people have written about it, is that that, of course, comes with uh, a critique, which is that so much of, I mean, this is changing a little bit now, but so much of the food culture and the popular food culture in the US at least is focused on european cuisines still and the and so much of food history that we have is still even if it's not exclusively about european cuisines it's kind of adopting a eurocentric approach so like in chef's table it was i mean how many episodes before they finally profiled someone who wasn't a french chef or an american chef trained in a french tradition and you know eventually it got there, um, but but was so
0: but even when, now that they, it's it's actually it's quite international the um, the way sort of like the defining thing about the people that they select is usually even if they're wherever they're from, that they have like a renowned restaurant in the u s usually, or they've mm-hmm. been like selected by an international magazine and put on some list. So so so. Still, there is this kind of, uh, you know, going to the mar- There's a kind of margin center, like structure to the discussion, right? It's, it's people from the peripheries who have made it uh, in 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 the centers of cuisine, kind right, of right, and
2: according to a particular standard that's set by the center,
0: right. Um, but then there's also been, I mean, I haven't read these. Marsha, you've talked about the fact that there's been multiple cookbooks of medieval Arabic cuisine are being translated into English now.
1: Yes, yes. I I mean this is uh actually, you no, know, Annie has Annie is much more successful at cooking from these cookbooks than I am, although finally I seem to have gotten the hang of it uh fairly recently. Uh Charles Perry has translated a couple and uh, Noel Nasrallah is now working on her third or fourth um apparently and Annie will correct me uh, if I'm terribly egregiously wrong there was sort of an um you know a, a process i think of writing down recipes in in Persian court culture that moved into Berdad and then an explosion of recipe writing among not just gentlemen but that that spread out enough that it was one of the main activities of scribes through in the 10th to 14th centuries and there are a number of these manuscripts of recipe collections and the, and uh, all the ones that i've seen are these huge recipe collections you know 700 to 800 completest 700 to 800 recipes sort of completest from Uh, soaps to wash your hands to desserts to side dishes Um, and that have the old. you can trace these really wonderful variations of for instance hummus from this uh, 13th century Syrian cookbook hummus in this 14th century Egyptian cookbook Um, and then I believe I saw from Noel then the next time there's like a a 19th century cookbook in Lebanon that mentions hummus. And it's much more like we think of hummus now.
0: And are these, so the books are being translated to, to be used as cookbooks or are they also being translated as more like historical, you know, sources of historical heritage? Or, I mean, what is the intended audience?
1: I think there are multiple intended audiences, Although Noelle, for instance, has been publishing through Brill, and I think she continues to, they are putting out a paperback version of uh, of Kenzel, uh, the Treasure Treasure Trove of Benefits um, this year, and and she also has sort of color pictures and uh, and adapted recipes at the back, uh, and and a long introduction that's really just lovely. And she also has a blog that we can link to. Like Annie, there are a handful of websites on the internet that make these recipes easier to use. But I have found that even somebody like me who is not really super handy in the kitchen can, can make something out of, out of these recipes and something enjoyable and fun. Not all of them. I can't, like, uh,
2: the pickled rose petals didn't work very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of them are really elaborate, but some of them, like the hummus recipes, you know, it's, um, you have to adapt them a little bit, but it's just slightly different and more spicing than we would be used to, but you could absolutely adapt them. But as the, as they are translated, they're, they're translated very um closely to the original so they're not adapted for a modern kitchen. You have to do a little bit of the adaptation yourself. Although, I you know, I I taught a couple of these cookbooks uh in this class and I was amazed at how many of my students, they had one assignment where they had to analyze a primary source and they could do it in any way they wanted and more than half of my students chose to cook their way through some of these recipes. Um so I think that's you know, these books are incredible historical resources for a historian or a scholar but I think part of their appeal is that you can cook this totally different medieval recipe
1: yeah I find them I mean not all of them like I can't I don't know where I would get ambergris uh,
2: yes <laughs> yeah I find myself there are certain um there's certain ingredients I've just rue there's so much rue this like bitter mm. herb um and i i i just have admitted defeat that i i can't include some of those things when i cook from them
0: and and something else that you've looked at annie not so much in relation or perhaps in relation to these medieval cookbooks but i know i read your article about this uh, incredibly influential modern egyptian cookbook is the is the distance right between the theory and the practice too sometimes. So like what that gap kind of illuminates.
2: Yeah. I've done a lot of work on, it's often called Kitab Abla Nazira, um, but it's, it's actually co-written by Nazira Nikola, who is commonly known as Abla Nazira in Egypt. Abla being kind of a, a term of endearment for an aunt, sort of older female figure. And she co-wrote it with Bahia Ufman, um, first published in the early 40s. And it there's actually there's a great joke about it in Al-Mutazawigun, which is a Faisal Nada play, which is one of the plays that Netflix apparently has put online recently. Um, but when I first learned about this cookbook, I was talking to a bookseller at the Esbakia book market. And he mentioned, he said, you have to know Abla Nazira if you want to study and understand Egyptian cuisine, but you also have to watch this play where they make fun of the cookbook. (laughs) So there's this famous joke where, so a sort of um, a woman from an upper middle class or a wealthier family marries uh, someone from a more working class background and they get married and she prepares the first meal for him. And she says, I followed Abla Nazira's directions. Kilma kilma, like word for word, just exactly what she said. And the joke is that the the food turns out terrible. Um, Because there, I mean, there's, it's such an interesting text. The recipes are written in a very, very formal fusha. So this very high register of Arabic, which it's just not how you would talk about cooking in almost any context. Um, So even the verbs for like, um, place and add and so forth are not even the same verbs you would use in a colloquial description of a recipe. Um, And then there's a lot sort of left to the discretion of the cook of, you know, cook this until it's done. Or, you know, um, you can bind your stuffing with either milk or something else, but pick one and then, you know, add it until it's the proper consistency. And so, you know, the book does all kinds of different things. It introduces European recipes. It records in writing local recipes, but it's it's not sufficient. Even even though it's it's different from the medieval cookbooks in that it kind of presents itself as being very comprehensive, and presents itself as being a teaching text that will give you everything you need to know. Um, It still is, you know, you. You sort of need quite a bit of embodied knowledge or oral knowledge to be able to make something palatable from it. Mm.
1: Well, maybe in the end there is no cooking text that could be complete in that sense.
2: I mean, I think Certainly. we all probably
1: need some knowledge of, you know, how to properly turn on the burner and safely, etc. That is passed down as oral knowledge. Definitely,
2: and you but know, it I did also know-
0: sounds. Sorry, go
2: ahead. Um, I was going to say I did a lot of um, oral history work trying to understand how women actually used this cookbook and what their relationship was to it, because it's a very beloved text. But a lot of women I spoke to would say, oh, we used it for ideas or we had it around as an object, but we didn't really cook from it. And then I talked to other women who who really did cook from it. And I have a lot of copies of the cookbook that clearly were used in a kitchen, that they've got oil mm-hmm. splatters, and food splatters, and the stains on them. Um, and, and so what I've sort of come to understand is that there, were, there was a whole generation of Egyptian women who were the first generation to be broadly sort of educated on a wide scale, and very often their mothers would teach them enough in the kitchen to know those very, very basic a couple recipes, how to work the oven, how to work the stove and so forth. But then they said go work on your studies. You can learn to cook later. And so that's where the the place for a cookbook like this comes in. That it requires a sort of a certain level of education to decipher the fusha, but it also requires you know some sort of basis of knowledge of how how to to work in a kitchen.
0: It also sounds sort of like it was part of a like bourgeois aspirational kind of you know lifestyle shift or or and 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 I think there are similar there are similar very prescriptive very detailed slightly impractical texts on child rearing and various forms of you know homemac that that you could find in, in other countries and cultures also in the 20th century, right. Where it was like, you were going to turn it all into a science or a high art. And, and, and there's that element of like, you know, it needs to be rationalized and studied and then presented in this like very, you know, scientific and formal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my grandmother was a home economist uh, in that period and what one of the interesting things to me is yeah the level to which it's scientified but also how yucky all the recipes are. <laughs> I mean what's important about them is that they're efficient and that they are economical and that they're healthy, that they have the correct vitamins. This USDA scientist worked on them, but none of them are at all appealing flavor-wise.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I think, if, particularly if you're looking at like mid 20th century, like American and Anglo-Saxon cuisine, I mean, cuisine, there was like a lot of a lot of culinary questionable culinary <laughs> trends, right? I mean, it's also when like suddenly, you know, can- refrigerated and canned food and all these things came in, and 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 that was like fashionable. to to cook in this way, which was then rejected a generation later. Right. And I mean, and then part of that in the U.S. at least is
2: linked to as a result of, well, I think in Europe as well, you know, part of provisioning armies in World War II was developing these ways of preserving and canning things. And so you had a whole industry that needed a new consumer once the war was over. And so some historians have argued that this is partly why this was pushed on housewives, that this was sort of the new fashionable, modern way to cook. Um, And so what's interesting in the Egyptian, in Abla Nazira's text, she was educated in England. She went to culinary school in England in the 1920s. And so her cookbook does have some of that stuff. Um, You know, certain things that you can get in cans and things that just wouldn't weren't even on the market in Egypt uh, in some cases. Um, and then some other very aspirational ingredients, like using French-style bread to make breadcrumbs, you know, when we know that not everybody could afford French-style loaves in the 1940s. And um, so it's it's a really interesting mix of a lot of the sort of Western domestic science and home economics getting translated into fosha, but then next to it are a lot of local recipes as well, which are also kind of translated from their vernacular into fosha. Um, But definitely there is like a a very um, bourgeois middle-class ideology at work in the textbook where it's pushing a sort of notion of refined cuisine, which draws a lot from Europe, but then also has this Sort of undercurrent about labor that you should not outsource the cooking to a servant or to a domestic worker, um, but that women should learn to do this themselves.
0: Which I actually have a big question about because I was wondering because I feel like most of the cooking, especially for occasions, was done by more than one person, was definitely done in upper middle class Egyptian households with like a lot of. Domestic help, and I was wondering if the presence of those helpers is at all alluded to um, in any of this writing about cooking
2: in the mid century cookbooks in Egypt. It's um, no; that labor is erased, and it's it's considered undesirable. Which you know, I think again is another example of a total gap between practice and how it's set down in these cookbooks and why it's important not to read these cookbooks as representations of how things were actually cooked um and i again i think this ideology of the nuclear family that it should be this self-sufficient unit of just parents and children and that the woman is in charge of absolutely every detail managing the house and doing all the labor gets imported and kind of translated and adapted. Um, and there's a lot of of great gender and social history written about that. But then it also, you know, the cookbook shows how it plays out in this kind of fantasy of, of a kitchen where one woman does everything, which especially for the more elaborate meals, whether they're occasion meals that are Egyptian or shami or whatever, or or European ones, it's just completely impractical for one person to do all of that. Right, but it's the the sort
1: of moral thing to do, yeah? Yeah, according to this
0: prescriptive literature,
2: yeah.
0: This ties in also to your essay about food and happiness and the Egyptian kitchen, which I found very interesting, where you you contrast some of the more prescriptive literature About this new woman and and the way she would be in the household, she would run with like literary depictions of uh, and 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 you and you talk about Nagi Mahfouz's trilogy and how the descriptions there are more of the activity of cooking rather than like specifying it taking place in a particular like designated part of the house with like particular equipment. It kind of seems like it takes place. In different areas of the house, of course. And, and and that what's important is the activity rather than like the sort of mise en scène of it, like it it's sort of and but but then the prescriptive literature was very insistent that like if you're gonna cook, you have to have all these like particular tools and spaces.
2: Exactly. And a lot of when I approached my my research I kind of grounded it in a material history of the kitchen like what were the actual kitchens that women were cooking in and how did it change over time and so that's where this sort of came out that this idea of the kitchen as a concrete sometimes literally made out of concrete or some similar material but a specific permanent space is actually quite a recent one um and i think this that sort of goes in hand in hand with this ideology of if you're cooking and the kitchen quote unquote is based on activities that could happen on a roof or in a courtyard or on a balcony or at a neighbor's house then there's much more room for collective labor and for women of different households or different generations to work together but the idea of one woman making everything for her home also goes hand in hand with this discrete kitchen space, um, which in a lot of mid-century Egyptian apartments, the kitchen is sort of small and it's in the back. It's not meant to be seen. um, you know, and that changes a bit later, but, um, this, the Mahfouz, the, the Cairo trilogy gives us this great image of a household where All kinds of different women are doing different kitchen activities, and there's not even a a room that's called the kitchen in that house. Like the the word matbach is used matbachen, it's like an adject or an adverbial kind of use of a space that's used as a kitchen, um, Mm. is how it comes up in the text.
0: And and then you know that essay made me think of another Egyptian book in which the kitchen of of a sort of later later era and Zet Sonali Brahim's yeah. book mm. because I had this memory. So 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 Zet is um just for any listeners who aren't familiar with it, is a kind of I would say sort of social history of Egypt told through the life story of this imaginary housewife. Um and I remembered like the kitchen there was something about renovations of the kitchen and that that became like a big sort of dream of hers because all the neighbors are renovating their kitchens and bathrooms and she wants to also like keep up with them and and renovate her kitchen and then I went back and sort of searched through the text and the kitchen is like the location of just like endless mishaps and like you know uh, humiliations and and messes I mean when it's mentioned and and this place where she's mostly, you know, she's, she is alone. She's trying to provide for the family and she's constantly not managing to embody whatever ideal of like affluence and efficiency. You know, she's, she's trying, she's being told, she's messaged by society at large that she needs to, to, to live up to. Yeah.
2: I love that novel and I have not, you know, it's sort of on my list of things to write about and to get into the way that the kitchen is represented there. But I remember, I think it even cites specific magazines that she's reading how magazine and trying to follow recipes and they never quite work out correctly. And
0: yeah, I think at one point she tries to cook really healthy for the family and makes them all miserable. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) And everybody hates (laughs) it. I also love that novel because the, I think it's one of the very last, chapters even but they there's also a part uh, devoted to the maids that she has and the help that she has and it divides egyptian history you know the narrator sort of says most people divide egyptian modern egyptian history into nasser sadat and mubarak but for zat it was the three maids that she had helping her at different points in time um and again like the sort of messy relationship between this middle-class woman and the people that she hires to work in her home is sort of laid bare and sort of explored in the novel in a way that it would just not really appear in a women's magazine or other mm. prescriptive literature of the time.
1: Yeah, it, well, I mean, I, I can't remember what magazine it would have appeared in when I was living in Cairo, but I was I, I was frequently sort of baffled by things such as, I, you know, a magazine telling me that I shouldn't feed uh, for a healthy breakfast I should feed my kids cornflakes. Like what 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 does that what does that have to do with life in Egypt or being healthy at all?
0: That's just advertising. <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, that's just <true>. advertising. <laughs> good product
2: placement. I yeah.
1: just remembered some list of healthy breakfasts for my kids that included pancakes and cornflakes rather than, you know, some sort of proper breakfast of fool and talmea.
2: I guess that's a form of uh, you know, aspirational you know, this idea that what's imported or what is new is, is good or desirable. But it reminds me of, um, my dogs obviously agree, Um, (laughs) it reminds me of, uh, I I just remember as a kid all these cereal commercials for sugary cereal, you know, cereal that was basically candy. Um, And the ad would say it's part of a complete breakfast. But then the the photo would show a breakfast that also had some fruit and some protein and some (laughs) other things. So they would get away with this you know, passing it off as part of a good meal when, in fact, it had to be quite supplemented to be nutritional at all.
0: Yeah, and also when, like, that's that's when realistically they knew that nobody was going to be, like, slicing fruit alongside the cereal. Like, they're just doing that to make you feel better. Yeah. Um, There's a lot. There's so much ideologically that goes around food. I'm reminded uh, also of the controversy that happened in Morocco a few years back when um, one of the Ministry of Education textbooks used oh. a couple <laughs> Moroccan colloquial words right. um, in a discussion of breakfast <gasps> food, for instance, yeah. right? <laughs> and and there was an uproar over this introduction of colloquial into the as if this was an attempt to like undermine basically Arabic proper Arabic education when it made perfect sense to you know call a food especially by the actual word that children would be used to calling it in in their families and so on and i remember you know the minister had to apologize and uh you know you know backpedal on and it was like three words in one lesson um yeah it's extraordinary the and and so i don't know if the other controversy that I would like to talk about is I really appreciated your article about uh, the appropriation of hummus. Mm -hmm. Um, And because it sort of spelled out for me, I think we've all kind of like seen online these, you know, you know, people sharing basically usually with like horror and, and ridicule some new Western variants on hummus um, and you know, I don't know, chocolate hummus, or you guys can think of, of, right of, of ones that used to CBD hummus. Right. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. Right. And, and, and I've, and I think like a lot of people, like I have thought, you know, there's something really lame about this without really kind of like articulating what it is that, that bothered me. And I think you you did it very well with this discussion about like what it means to translate, not just a word, but a food. Right. And I also thought expl- it was,
1: uh, it was lovely that you talked about the history, the hybridity and the variety of hummus, that there are these different hummuses, but, the, and yet that the word still has a meaning.
2: Yeah. And I think this is the, this is really important. And this is where some sort of food politics and food writing can slip into this, authenticity trap where, you know, the flip side of arguing against brownie batter hummus is you don't want to say that hummus is only one thing or can never change. And by extension, food cultures are only one thing and never change, Um, which I think is especially important in talking about Middle Eastern culture in the U.S. where there's this stereotype of the Middle East being a place of Unchanging everything, culture, religion, norms, and so forth. Um, and I mean, I'm shocked at how often I'll talk about a historical recipe and people will gloss it as an ancient recipe just because it comes from the Middle East, which is a place that's assumed to have an ancient history. Um, so, this is again, you know, one of the incredible things about the translations of these cookbooks is that these like English versions of all of these historical hummus recipes are available to a wide audience that can see for themselves and look at how the dish has changed over time. Um, but I do think a lot about moving foods between cultures and talking about another culture's food is through the lens of sort of an ethics of translation and that you're not just translating, um, the title of a food or the name of a food but it actually means something to call some to call a dish hummus um and that if you are completely neglecting both what it's meant in the past um in terms of what historical recipes tell us and then its significance also in contemporary cultures where hummus is eaten um it's an you know it's an act of appropriation it 's dishonest it's it 's losing something it 's you know the the idea of introducing new foods should ultimately enrich and broaden a place 's palate but if you 're not paying attention to any of that cultural significance and historical background um, that 's where you know i think that 's why it bothers us so much. you know part of it is this like sort of ick factor, but there 's something <laughs> more deeply political about it, which I think is important. This is something that happens in food where so much of opinions about food can get chalked up to personal taste, which has this sort of depoliticizing potential to it. Um, But to really, you know, sort of lay out what does it mean to translate, to use, to do a sort of a bad translation of hummus into something that looks more like brownie batter. Why is that a problem?
0: Mm. And like you say, you could just call it dip, but there's a uh, vegan chickpea dip, vegan pulse dip, but you know it's, but there's a wanting to use the word for its kind of like basically exotic potential
2: exactly. um, without like
0: with without respecting really, without respecting the the culture and the cuisine and the language that it comes from enough to really think about what it is, and partly it's a sort of like you know, endless, you know, capitalist machine that, that, that goes around the globes kind of hoovering up, you know, new products and that, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, new, you know, uh, super berries and new, you know, special. So there always has to be some, it always has to be introduced as something special that we've brought to you from far across the world. Right. Like, some 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 new and unique and different and special product that and and one of the ways to signify that is with this is with this name, which really doesn't correspond to its source yeah and I think it is annoying yeah it is there and there's been a you know
2: increasing discussion of this in sort of food media lately, like one term that I saw was the the global pantry as this attitude of picking up ingredients from all these different places with absolutely no attention to or crediting. It's, you know, you could also talk about it as a politics of citation Mm. kind of issue. You know, you picked this up from somewhere, like be honest about where it comes from and what it means and how it traveled.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, I think none of us are at all against the incredible, you know, gifts that we can receive from exploring other cuisines and incorporating them. Like that's, that's not the problem. Right. Right.
1: And I love these, uh, not ancient, sorry, medieval (laughs) hummuses. The one, you know, the ones with pistachio in them and, um, different, different types of and levels of flavors. I really enjoy that complication to it.
2: Um, Yeah. And You know, in looking at those recipes, at a bunch of those medieval recipes, you realize things like um, the combination of dried coriander seeds and dried cumin seeds, toasted and then ground, crops up in so many of them um, as just such a lovely alternative to salt and pepper or cumin and pepper um, or cumin and salt, you know, these, these sort of layers of flavors that are they're in the historical record and still work with modern versions of hummus too.
0: so how many of these recipes have you tried, Marsha, from the cookbooks you've been reviewing?
1: I don't know i I mean how many of how I mean, have I made successfully or how many have I made um i I've made a a couple dozen probably. I think the you know there's there the vegetable dishes tend to be more forgiving, I think mm-hmm. um, like eggplant dishes somehow. I find easier to manage than than some of the other ones. And then there are so many that have this ridiculous list of, you know, I need to start with um clean ash, and then I need to find, you know, Spike Nard and Right.
2: Oh, I don't (laughs) what? Spike Nard is another one I've just given up on. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I (laughs) have to apologize to the historical record. I don't know where to procure that.
0: But it is, there is something kind of evocative about realizing maybe how, because you kind of, I think when you think about, you know, people and other times, you don't really, it doesn't occur to you that they might have been eating food that tasted quite so different from what we eat now, right? Like, it's just a tiny example of how in the ways in which people's realities might have been quite different right like that the actual Absolutely. flavors on their tongue were flavors we can't not even we can't find we can't imagine it just gives you like a little example of how you know as 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 much as one can i think try to put oneself in the place of people in other eras and other places there's also these little things that were really distinctly different
1: although this really does i think that's one of the things i love about these cookbooks is that they do allow me to travel through time in a different way than I, than I have previously, right? So I can read a 14th century text, which appears foreign to me in a particular way or different. You know, people describe things differently; they valued different aspects. Um, but this is so much more visceral. If I imagine that I, okay, doubtless I have not in. Ever in any case made things exactly the same. I'm certainly not, actually, even aiming for authenticity. I never cooked anything over a fire. I'm using my burner in the kitchen. Um, but that I you know can imagine viscerally something more like a flavor that somebody was was eating in the 14th century. It's it's a, like a much wilder way of, of traveling through time than than reading something from the 14th century.
2: Yeah, and it's it's imperfect, but it gives you a sense of just the, the sheer number of spices that get put into one dish, for example. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and historians of the senses and historians of food have talked about how we don't even know, I mean, our capacities for tasting have probably changed, um, let alone, you know, the way that different crops and foods taste we probably have no idea what chickpeas, what were chickpeas even like a thousand years ago? You know, mm-hmm. they might've looked different, they might've tasted different. So there's always limitations, but the those recipes do give you a sense of what, a general sense of what, what was different. Um, I think your remark about vegetables is interesting because this is another kick I've been on is I think there's a misconception that high medieval Islamic cuisine must've been very meat heavy um, and there are so many vegetarian and vegan recipes, um, right? There, well,
1: there's like I think a lot of them had right chapters for um, for your ill friend and your, I mean, chapters for Christians, fe- fasting Christians, and sick people, right? That were entirely um, vegetarian or vegan, and then there are of course many, many vegetable dishes in the other sections as well. I, right. I mean, I I eat vegetarian and. I never feel shortchanged by, by these
0: cookbooks. Since a lot of us are actually at home and cooking more than we have in the past, this might be an opportunity for people to dip either into old recipes or just recipes they've never tried. And is there somewhere where you would recommend starting? For medieval recipes, I the the two cookbooks that were recently
2: translated are a great place to start. Um, So that's Scents and Flavors, which is the Syrian cookbook from the Library of Arabic Literature, translated by Charles Perry. If you are an Arabic reader, if you can read Arabic, the Library of Arabic Literature actually has PDF Mm -hmm. files of the Arabic texts, not the English translation, but the Arabic version for free on their website. So if you are somewhere in quarantine and want to get quick access to that, that would be a great place to start. And then Noel Nasrallah's incredible translation of treasure trove of benefits and variety at the table is, is it out in paperback now, Marsha, or is it about to be in paperback? I think it it just came out this month in paperback. Yes. So definitely. I mean, that's just encyclopedic. That's incredible because of the amounts of glossaries and introductory texts she has, which can sort of guide you through, um, techniques or ingredients that might not be familiar, but I would recommend for anyone who has these and wants to get started to look at some of the, the foods like hummus, the foods in the category sometimes or cold dishes Mm -hmm. um, is a category to sort of start with because they're often sort of simpler, colder salad type things, but there are a lot of these sauces and condiments and dips, pickles um, are a great place to start because they're not quite as complex as the stews and the more elaborate dishes. Um, so that's where I would recommend for people to start.
0: Cool. And then didn't you also basically, uh, uh, write something recently about how koshari is also like an ideal quarantine dish? Yes.
2: So it's, I had originally pitched a story about the history of koshari and how it's, um, Become a popular food in kind of fast casual restaurants and then of course because of quarantine life and COVID and all of the related events kind of pivoted the story because kosari is a perfect pantry dish almost all the ingredients you need are shelf stable and there are things that people often have sort of lying around Um, so you need some rice some pasta some lentils onions um, tomato sauce or tomatoes to make a tomato sauce of some kind, some vinegar, some garlic, some hot sauce. Um, but the really remarkable thing about koshari is that if you look at its history over the past 600 years, it's actually undergone so many different substitutions and changes, which is to say that I think you can sort of look at it as a template for a kind of dish um, that can be made from shelf stable things that are on hand, which is historically how people have, have made it. So if you don't have the right kind of macaroni or the right kind of lentils, you know, from a historical perspective, you can still make koshiri with whatever you have on hand. Um, but I recently published, uh, a piece with a little bit of history and then sort of a step-by-step guide to putting together a koshiri type dish on eater.com, um, so that's uh, I like
1: I like that permission right. because people sometimes ask me, "Oh, did you make a real koshari?" Like, well, it was good. Everybody in the family ate it and liked it. Right. It was approximately koshari.
2: Yeah, and it's you know, it's not just historically, but from talking to 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 dozens of Egyptians about koshari, you know, people make it at home and would often tell me about the variations that they would make. You know my mother made it without chickpeas, but I always add chickpeas, you know, these sorts of things. So there, there is again, this sort of tension between there is a sort of historical category of Koshiri that I think is, you know, we should talk about and pay attention to, but within that, that there's always been a lot of variation and substitution and, experimentation so this is certainly the time for all of that
0: absolutely Excellent. well we'll make sure to include uh that piece in the show notes as we will we'll also link to all the other writing that we've discussed um today and uh yeah i mean i now now after this discussion there's like multiple things that i want to go cook <laughs> <laughs> great then it was- and and i want to reread that <laughs> yes yeah, let's have a book club and reread that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, I've somehow lost my copy in my move to Jordan. I was heartbroken. Oh. I'm going to have to somehow somehow get, get, get another one, although books aren't super easy to obtain at the moment.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, Annie. I really enjoyed both reading your pieces and talking about them more today. Thanks so much for having me on. This was really fun. Great. Thanks, Annie. All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye, Marsha. Bye. Bye.